Welcome to Telegeography Explains the Internet, the show that explores the business behind all of the ways humans stay connected around the world. I'm your host, Greg Bryan, and we're in part two of a two-part series here that we're doing where I wrap up the year 2022 with six of my colleagues across all several of the different research areas that we have here at Telegeography. So if you missed last week, go back and listen there where I talked to my colleagues, Patrick, Rob, and John about uh, internet, cloud, pricing for transport and, uh, and other services. And then of course, data centers, uh, with John Yembo and uh, what's going on in the data center world, where there's developments, um, how uh, inflation and supply chain issues might be impacting pricing, energy, all that kind of stuff. Um, we're going to bring it back specifically to the kind of whole gamut of telecoms in this episode. I'll first be talking to my colleague, Alan Malden, all about submarine cables, what happened this year, um, how uh, they were impacted by the inflation and supply chain issues that we've heard so much about across all kinds of news, and um, what the landscape of submarine cable development looks like over the next couple of years. Um, I talked to my colleague, Brianna Boudreau, about SD-WAN and, and get into a little bit of security there, certainly as well, in thinking about what SD-WAN vendors are really sort of focused on uh, and where the enterprise market is in its SD-WAN adoption journey. And then finally, talk to Tim Strong, uh, who directs all of our research here at Telegeography, um, and get into some of the ways that uh, telecoms actually impacts kind of the broader world out there, uh, rather than just focused on this sort of inside the industry uh, kind of trends that, that we so often do on the podcast, but look at um, some major world events, uh, as, as I kind of phrase it in the interview, both human and natural disasters, if you will, and, um, and what that means uh, for the telecom world and for all of us as, as consumers outside of the, of the business even. So it's a, a few really interesting conversations again. Um, so without further ado, let's get on to the interviews. All right. My next guest is Alan Malden, who's research director of the infrastructure team at Telegeography. Now, Alan, you, you are in charge of all of our infrastructure research, but in particular, you are our expert on submarine cables. And I have to say, as I travel around the world and talk to people like this, submarine cables are what people know telegeography i think yeah. the most for in my experience so so that kind of makes you the face of telegeography <laughs> in a certain sense <laughs> and what a handsome face it is greg it's a, absolutely yeah it's a good thing this is an audio podcast this round because i'm playing santa claus <laughs> for a performance of my beard is in a state of like half dyed white sense <laughs> Um, but you have a lovely tableau with your your christmas tree uh joining us from uh where are you located alan uh, in Bratislava, Slovakia, the heart of Europe. Indeed, the, the Eastern European Telegeography Office. Um, but that's good time zones because you can kind of stay connected from a Central Europe time zone to both Asia and, and the Americas, right? Absolutely. So. It's perfect. Right in the middle. Yeah. Excellent. All right. So um, I want to talk about submarine cables with you, obviously. And it's 
been my impression over the past few years that there's been a boom in submarine cable construction. It, it, it does seem to have a sort of boom and bust cycle, like a lot of uh, economic activity. Are, are we still in an ongoing boom cycle with cable construction? What, what's going on with submarine cable development? Yeah, you're totally right. There's been a really large boom in new cable uh, builds and new investment in, in cables, really all over the world. Um, according to our data, there's about $10 billion worth of cables being uh, built that will enter, enter service wow. this year and the next two years. So that's a lot of mm -hmm. money going under under the ocean for, for new cables. Mm -hmm. And this past year, we you know started to see some of these cables that have been planned for many years finally entering service. So mm. you know, we had the mm -hmm. peace cable between uh, you know, France and Egypt and uh, um, Africa and the Middle East entering service in the spring and the Southern Cross Next cable in uh, the summer. And this fall, we had the Grace, the Grace Hopper cable across the Atlantic and the kind of unique Oman Australia cable also entering service. So, mm. And uh, we should be hearing, I, I guess, this month, maybe early, early next year about the activation of the Equiano cable the first new cable hitting the West coast of Africa in quite some time. So that's a big one. Oh, wow. yeah. 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 So now let me ask you, you said finally coming into service. Does that mean that they were delayed from their original RFS dates due to like COVID and whatnot? Or is it just that it's been such a long time we've been hearing about these cables that it feels like, Oh, they're finally here. It's the latter really. I think, you know, it takes a long mm -hmm. time for cables to go from the design stage, a concept, uh, you know, getting a contract in place to actually building these cables. And uh, there was right. a report just this past week, uh, the uh, somebody at Alcatel uh, Systems Marine Network said they are currently negotiating contracts for installing cables after 2024. So they are full wow. to lay cables mm -hmm. the next two years. That's one of the biggest suppliers of subsea cables. So if right. if they can't put a cable in the water for two more years, you can get an idea of just how how full they are with new cables that are going right. to be laid, you know, up until twenty twenty five. And of course, th there's still more cables planned, right? This, there's, right. there's not, there's not an, a, a a end in sight to this this, this boom. Really, there's more being planned constantly. And so, so my question then becomes: because we know with such a lead time that these cables are coming and we know roughly how much lit capacity there will be on them, right? Does the market kind of absorb that new supply ahead of time uh, so, so that we, we can easily predict what the, what the impacts will be on the market? So it's definitely true that, that whenever new cables are, are going to enter service, often we, we see some more uh, aggressive price erosion from the operators mm -hmm. who are currently on the route, trying to get some of the extra demand in the market, um, you know, get some extra extra sales before they face a new com competing cable uh, on on that route. Mm -hmm. But you know, this year pricing has had a you know an interesting twist. There's been a you know there's been delays in upgrades to cables, a shortage of, of supply on, on many routes, which has led to prices staying uh, the, the the same in some cases or declining at a very slow slow rate. Um, that's also right. due not just to the delays in upgrades, but also due to um, higher cost of equipment as well. So we're not seeing prices yeah. going up, but we are seeing a slowing rate of erosion, yeah. right? That's a very yeah. key point to make, make clear there. I th I, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be doubled because I, I, I did talk to Rob a little bit about this uh, in, in the broader context. Sure, not just absolutely. Too, but yeah. 
Um, and so I think I think that's been a big question on on everybody's mind. So in the submarine cable world, there has been some supply chain impact, but it but it hasn't actually led to to increase prices or it sounds like from what you're saying actual like missed RFS dates or anything like that so far. RFS dates, uh, you know, often do get pushed back for cables. Just to be clear, for people who don't know what the RFS in, means. In, in RF, every kind of yeah, market. So right, R, yeah. a, a RFS date is the ready for service date. When the cable actually enters com- commercial service, you can buy capacity on it. And and mm-hmm. so those dates, you know, they're, 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 they're planned years in advance, but often they, they will slide due to many factors. Uh, can you get the uh, ships available that you need to do to lay the cable? Um, are there weather delays? And one of the biggest factors these days is permitting delays. You know, you have to get so many different types of permits to, to lay the mm-hmm. cables. And so those delays um, have led to many you know, long delays, especially in Asia. You're seeing cables like uh, um, SJC2 and the ADC cable, which you know had hoped to be in service years ago. Those now are targeting maybe the end of next year, maybe even 2024. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Uh, I have also talked to our colleague, John Yembo, and, and he mentioned some uh, regulatory issues with development of data centers. So it seems like it seems like everyone this year has had on their mind supply chain issues and inflation. But these are really factors outside of, of those, you know, sort of like common economic factors that everyone else is talking about sure. that, that are kind of going to be present regardless of, of what uh, the, the global sort of economic COVID-driven situation is, it sounds like. Right. Excellent. All right. So you, you talked about this a little bit, but let's let's look at the next 12 to 24 months um, and, uh, and, and talk more specifically about exactly what we think is coming and, and how that's going to impact things. Yeah, so um, you know, there's a lot of new major cables that will be entering service uh, next year. The Amatea cable between uh, UK and France and the US is going to be entering service next year. That's a you know a very high capacity cable. Um, the and that's interesting because the transatlantic route has historically always been the most uh, well served route with supply and whatnot. But there's there's room to grow still there. Absolutely, and we're seeing about you know one cable a year really. So you know this pat this mm-hmm. this year we saw the Grace Hopper cable. Uh, next year is the Amantia cable, and there's a, a meta-led cable planned for 2024. So lots of new mm. cables happening in the Atlantic. In the in the, in the Pacific next year, uh, Google's Topaz cable should be in service. That's kind of unique. That's a Canada to Japan cable. So haven't had one going mm. from Canada to wow. Asia in quite a long now, time. Now, that, is that going over the North Pole, or is it... Uh, um, uh, it's not. It's just going across the Pacific. Cause yes. I, I suppose the North Pole would be very difficult from a uh, from a practical standpoint, but geographically that would make a lot of sense, right? So, right. Yeah. Um, interesting. You mentioned Meta and Google. I I also wanted to ask about content providers and cables. It's been the big story over the last few years. Um, has any of that dynamic changed in 2022, or do you anticipate it changing uh, in terms of just? First, bring us up to speed on on what the the content provider uh, involvement in, in submarine cables has been for the last few years. For anybody who's not up on that, and then to you know, is that going to continue the way it has been? Right. So to be clear, we're, talk, we're talking about really Google and Meta, to a lesser extent, mm-hmm. Amazon and Microsoft as being the companies who are have taken a step the last you know. 10 to 15 years to actually invest directly in cables themselves and not just acquiring capacity mm-hmm. from carriers on these, these routes. And so they are the biggest investors on many of the major routes. 
and are expanding into new areas as well. So the Equiano cable is a Google cable, which is going to enter service again, like this month or early next next year. Also next year, we're going to see the, the start of the to Africa cable entering service, which is a massive, like 45,000 kilometer cable spanning you know, wow. Europe, all around Africa, the Middle East, and India. So that's going to start entering service mm-hmm. in, in, in phases. Um, and there's activity really everywhere. Google has the, the Fermina cable going from the U.S. to uh, South America, right? So The West Coast. That's the West Coast one? So. Uh, it's East Coast. It's a Brazil, oh, it's East Coast. Okay. Argentina, and Uruguay. Yeah, all those three countries are going to be okay. hit by that cable. Yeah. Um, but I think one question we've been asked a lot recently is, with the market pullback and the stock prices, I mean, companies falling and you know layoffs at, at, at various companies, is, is that going to have an impact in in, in the in the capex of these companies, their their appetite to deploy new cables? And and so I think from what we understand, uh, you know, there there is not going to be a a massive slowdown or a reduction. They, there's going to be maybe some time to re- to re rethink and be more cautious about their investments and and mm-hmm. and be be more careful, not just you know, keep build, 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 but you need to realize these companies are, are right now involved in so many cables that haven't yet entered service. That, be so, years before that is all dried up, right? Absolutely. So, yeah. Right. So they, they, they don't have to focus on building a cable for 2028 right now. You know, that they can take a mm-hmm. pause and not, not work on that one right now. They definitely are fully, they've say, they say that they, they intend to commit to what they have already planned to build. So, you know, in the, in, the, in, the, in the Pacific, you have Echo and Bifrost and Topaz and, you know, multiple cables, Apricot in the, in the intra-Asian area. There's lots of cables globally that have yet to actually enter service. And, and so once those get done, I think you will see a new round of investment by these companies happening in new cables. And to be clear, this, this past year, I can't think of really a single cable that was announced that involved a content provider. This year's been a bit slow mm-hmm. for new cables being announced, but that mm-hmm. that just maybe just the 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 nature of the build the build cycle, right? Yeah, that's really interesting. That that the, this is a you know submarine cables are a massive infrastructure undertaking. It's long term. Only a handful of yeah. very specialized suppliers who can actually do the sort of turnkey work, and so you're not going to see the immediacy. Uh, of, of impact in things like quarterly earnings reports, uh, as as you might in other sectors of, That's of, absolutely of various technology right. yeah. industries. Yeah, I mean, just because the stock price has has fallen, you, you know, that doesn't mean that the the demand for the that company's uh, services has de- de- decreased mm-hmm. as well, right? Um, there's right. no indication that 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 the demand uh, for bandwidth by Meta or Google or any of these companies is going down or really even slowing that, that much. Um, it's still, mm-hmm. still growing at a, at a very strong, strong rate, and they will need to have more capacity in the future to meet those requirements. So, yeah, absolutely. That's, that's a great way to close out. Uh, Patrick and I talked about this, how, uh, at the, at the very local level, ISPs and 5g providers are always getting more bandwidth to more eyeballs and that all trickles up to the need for constant development in, in the submarine cable space. So you'll Definitely. have lots to do, I guess, yeah. right? So, yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me from Bratislava, Alan. And um, I hope we can talk again soon. Happy to chat as always, Greg. All right. Cheers.
All right, next on our year in review show, I have joining me Brianna Boudreaux, who is our senior research manager for SD-WAN, among other things, but SD-WAN is, is what we're talking about um, here today, Bri. And um, I wanted to start out with uh, something that we've seen in our uh, survey data of end users, that it looks like um, the number of enterprises that have SD-WAN actually already running up uh, on their uh, network is a little bit lower than where I would have personally guessed that it would be. And that's important since I designed our uh, forecast of WAN services model. But so, so we're, uh, w w what's up there? Has uptake slowed down? Are people not interested in SD-WAN or what do you think is going on? No, I think interest is still really high across a lot of the enterprises that we talk to and certainly the vendors and carriers that are seeing interest from customers in it. Part of it is deployment timelines. Um, I know that when we did the latest version of the WAN Manager survey, the number of enterprises that had installed it across most of their sites was only 50%, which is slightly higher than the 43-ish percent we saw two years ago, um, which seems like a small increase for a technology that is kind of one of the biggest buzzwords in the industry. Um, but part of that really the is last, like five years, right? I know. So, yeah. I feel like any conversation yeah. you have at any conference with enterprise carriers, customers is about SD-WAN SASE, which we'll get to. Um, but it has taken a lot longer to roll out across networks than I think maybe a lot of us realized. Um, I know mm -hmm. that in the latest version of the Wind Manager survey, about 70% of respondents said it took over a year to deploy SD-WAN across their network. Um, so it's not the plug and play, like, you know, is easy no, thing zero touch install, like, yeah, exactly. just plug it in, it works. Yeah. Um, it hasn't quite worked out that way. Um, mm -hmm. Part of it also is COVID and all the supply chain issues factoring into right. this. I know I this was- come up in most of my conversations with my, our colleagues here, so yeah. Exactly, especially for SD-WAN appliances, getting those to customer sites. I know I was just at the SD-WAN and SASE Summit last month and a lot of the vendors mm -hmm. were saying they were hit pretty hard with supply chain issues um, and that they were quoting customers over a year to get those appliances onto their site. A lot of them said that's wow. mostly resolved itself now. So maybe we mm -hmm. will see that deployment start to increase steadily the next time we run the survey, mm -hmm. but it definitely has been an issue that's kind of slowed down SD-WAN deployments. But again, interest is high. I know some of the providers I talked to at that event were saying they've never had more customer requests for the service. So Excellent. Okay, so my forecast maybe isn't that far off. There's just going to be a little lull over the 2020 to 2023 kind of period for for the supply chain to catch exactly. up. Exactly. We just got to catch and up. And people to be in offices and stuff yes. like that, and right? So now now everyone's back, and so we can start working again. And that was <laughs> another that, thing that was... they said was that it wasn't just getting the appliances there; it was getting their crews there to help enterprises install the service. During the height of COVID, mm -hmm. that became a big issue getting people on site, and that has worked itself out slowly as well. Right. Okay. So SD-WAN still going to continue growing. It will become most likely not ubiquitous, but very, very common technology like MPLS became 15 years ago. Yeah. That's still underway. Good to know. Um, the other big story, it seems to me, over the past uh, couple of years in the SD-WAN space has been the integration of security. We've talked a lot on the podcast about, about SASE and whatnot, but what have you seen from the SD-WAN provider perspective, since that's uh, your sort of uh, focus in this particular area of research um, in terms of security integration in, into SD-WAN services? 
I think it's hard to have a conversation these days about SD-WAN with a vendor and not talk about security. It's really become, right. you're not just offering SD-WAN, it's about what features in the security space you're integrating into it, particularly those in the SASE architecture, like next-gen firewall, secure web gateway, CASB. Um, the interesting thing has been, there's kind of two ways to offer it and which way the vendors are going. You can kind of, there's those that, are kind of a one-stop shop. They offer all the individual security features, whereas other vendors have partnered with best-of-breed providers to help mm. enterprises get those features as a part of their mm-hmm. SD-WAN offering. So, now the one-stop shop that you mentioned for security. So, would some of those be the security vendors who got into SD? So, you can come from one direction or the other. Right? There's a security vendor who uh, who gets into SD-WAN, or there's more like an equipment SD-WAN vendor who can add on security? Is, is that the, the primary dividing line? Exactly. And there, there's a lot of discussion about what is the easiest for the enterprise to deploy? What's the most seamless in terms of integration of all these features? Like coming from a security background, like a Fortinet or a Cisco, they know all those services are interoperable. They can deploy them across your network with their SD-WAN. Whereas if a vendor is partnering with different providers for these services that specialize in that service, it may be the best of breed, but how are they all going to work together? Is it really going to be that single pane of glass for enterprises? So there are pros and cons to both. And that's been a big part of the discussion this year. Yeah. And I suppose from the enterprise perspective, you could go in a couple of directions too. It's that I could have a single pane of glass from an MSP carrier, or I could go find the best in breed for every single one of these elements. Uh, but that that seems like um, <laughs> is it worth their whatever time benefits and the you, <laughs> exactly? Yeah, so it, very dependent on what kind of um, IT infrastructure budget and uh, and expertise you have on board, I guess. And a lot of the um, standardizing of those services so that they integrate is going to be a focus going forward. I know that you're friendly with all the people at MEF and that's been a big thing mm-hmm. that they've taken on as well recently to make it easier yeah. for enterprises. Right. Actually, absolutely. So to know that um, what you're getting and, and that it will work with what else you have. Right? Yes. So very important. <laughs> um, you know, the last thing I wanted to touch on, uh, Brianna, was um, we'd seen a lot of consolidation uh, over the, the past several years in the SD-WAN space, which we, we predicted, which is nice always when it's the things that you think will happen do. Has that slowed down? Have we kind of reached a market stability, you think, uh, in terms of SD-WAN providers? I think so. There's uh, like a top 10 household names that always come up when you're having these discussions and you see out at the industry events, mm-hmm. for sure. And it's not kind of that everyone has an SD-WAN story that we saw a few years ago with smaller upstarts being purchased by bigger providers. We kind of Right. at least on the vendor side of things, um, have kind of a stable of the most popular providers for sure. And a lot of carriers have partnered with a number of those vendors at this point to be able to offer different SD-WAN solutions based on network requirements, price points, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Um, when you look at carriers, MSPs, um, are, are most of them selecting more than one so that, that if you go with them as a as an MSP, you can still make a decision between one of the big, like, you know, uh, Silver Peak or Viptela or whatever it is, right? I think so. At this point, we see like two or three partners is usually the most common amongst the MSPs mm-hmm. to be able to offer a variety to their enterprise customers. So so no longer are you that worried about like, oh, if I, if I pick this kind of like startup one, if I'm a multinational enterprise that that everything's going to change for me when when they uh, get bought by a huge equipment. 
vendor, let's say. No, no, I think the most popular, at least vendor partners for the carriers are in it for the long haul at this point. So mm-hmm. we're pretty, we've moved past that phase. Excellent. That's that's good to know. All right. So what are we looking for in 2023? What, what are you uh, going to be tracking for the SD-WAN space? I think a lot of it is looking at pricing um, still, which is always a popular topic with everyone. How much is the cost of this overlay going to be um, in terms of what your network looks like? Last year, we saw some convergence in provider price points. Um, as people, as this service becomes a little bit more standard, people are positioning themselves to be a little bit more competitive. Um, we saw that range between vendors shrink it. I think we're going to see it continue this year. I had heard that some Probably people... Probably thanks to your research. Like <laughs> it's the, the principle that like you've brought order to that chaos. And so now they have to, uh, you know, um, compare themselves, right? Yeah, so, it's, right. A, it's a little bit of a mess still, but we're, we're yeah. getting through it. But people have said that they've been making some readjustments to become more competitive. And so we're still analyzing mm-hmm. the data. It's going to come out early next year, but I expect to see that trend continue. And what about price increases. That's another thing I've talked about with, with several of our colleagues that, you know, all of these things that we mentioned, supply chains and, and labor issues and whatnot that have been happening. Is that going to impact the cost of SD-WAN, you think? It's a little bit of a mixed bag so far. Um, we've had a few providers hold pricing steady, and that's probably to absorb some of their cost increases. A few that we saw on the lower end of our range did make some price increases this year to readjust for inflation and we're pretty transparent about it. Um, still fairly competitive in terms of the spectrum of vendors out there, but there is some of that being felt on the SD-WAN side with the cost increases. That's very interesting. And then my, my last question then would be around the SD-WAN in the mix of, of the broader WAN costs. And I know that um, I, I can ask you this uh, because you worked on a, a series with me about uh, hypothetical WAN scenarios and whatnot. So if we do see some uh, some slowdown or, or arresting of price declines in, in the WAN space and maybe even some slight upticks in SD-WAN, what's, what's the impact on, on that calculus of, uh, say, moving away from MPLS adopting SD-WAN and internet first, does that does that change that scenario, you think? Maybe a little bit, but I don't think that much. I think overall, if you are able to add in SD-WAN and move to integrate DIA and broadband, the cost savings, the last time we ran these scenarios was so large, even if there is a slight increase in the proportion of SD-WAN that you're paying for, you're still going to mm-hmm. achieve network savings if you're moving away from that NPLS. So I don't think we expect that to change. That is good to know. All right, Brianna, thank you so much for joining me. This is really interesting. And um, it's always good to know that uh, that some of the things that I've been writing about and thinking about aren't uh, wildly off from what you end up seeing in the data. So. No, exactly. Thank you for having me, yeah. Greg. All right, cheers. Okay, so you've heard from a bunch of telegeography analysts about the trends that we saw going on this year and what we see coming next year. My last colleague that I want to have on is actually the head of all of our research, our vice president of research, Tim Strong. Welcome, Tim. Hey, Greg. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining me. And so you get to kind of capstone this with something a little bit different, um, which is where did telecom come out of our little sort of niche world and enter into the sort of broader news. 
that uh, people not involved in the business might have heard about and, and kind of involve itself in world events. Uh, I think you're going to talk sort of about, um, you might call it natural disasters and, and human disasters and, and how that impacted telecoms. Yeah, we're, we, we live in this telecom nerd world where we, we're so uh, invested in the intricacies of the telecom market that we sometimes forget that it actually affects our fellow human beings. Like nearly all 8 that, billion of them, really. So, yeah. 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 And also just basic real world events can affect the industry. The first one, if we look back at the year in review, uh, started in January and that was uh, a volcano not too far off of the islands uh, that make up the the country of Tonga erupted, mm-hmm. ended up being one of the largest eruptions re- in recorded history. It, it wasn't all that dramatic. Uh, ex- it might, well, it generated. If you were in some, Tonga, it was, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Or, or Peru, yeah. even. It, right. it generated some tsunamis mm-hmm. that, uh, that unfortunately killed a few people. But the eruption itself, besides the, the plume it created, wasn't all that dramatic because all of the pyroclastic flow was under the water. You couldn't mm-hmm. see it. So mm-hmm. it's not like some of the volcanoes where you see this dramatic footage of lava spewing out or this huge cloud of debris coming down. But what we forget is that the seafloor is not just some flat, inert place. Mm-hmm. There are mountains there and hills and some critical pieces of infrastructure that connect us, which are undersea cables. We have talked about this quite a bit. So, yeah. 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 yeah so. maps of these cables. And we do indeed. I, I have one yes. behind me every time I record. Yeah. So. <laughs> you do. Um, so the pyroclastic flow or, or something, I believe it was the flow, mm-hmm. uh, was gigantic right. off of this volcano. And it, it, it uh, caused a fault in the in the cable that connected Tonga to the rest of the world, the fiber optic cable. The very often with cable faults, it's one specific little fault. So it's a, a ship dragging anchor or mm-hmm. um, a, a fishing net getting snagged, and, and it's uh, a not great deal of damage to the cable. But not actually they sharks out, most of the time, right? <laughs> uh, that hasn't been recorded in. About forty years. But yeah, there was example of some shark bites a long time ago, but but not since then. But geological disasters can also affect us, mm-hmm. and it certainly affected here. Um, the they sent out a cable ship that arrived about a month after the eruption, mm-hmm. and uh, they found that about fifty mile chunk of the cable had been destroyed. Wow, right. So very different. Where, like you said, most faults are in a very precise place. They just pull the cable right. up, splice that that part. You're talking about yeah. a, a major relaying of cable in this case. That's right. And, and most cable ships keep uh, a lot of spare fiber optic cable mm-hmm. on the ship for moments like this. But apparently it was such a, a, a large chunk missing that they ran out of spare cables mm-hmm. so that they had to send a second ship out later on to repair another section. They did get it repaired, but in the meantime, people of Tonga were without fiber optic internet mm-hmm. based internet for over a month. And people joke, oh, if I'm going to lose the internet, that means I can't check Facebook. No big deal. Or right. maybe it's going to be healthier for me. But that event really brought home how important telecommunications is. Mm-hmm. There were examples of uh, people at ATMs and there's an error message. You, 
this offline. Right. right. It's not just the internet browsing the mm -hmm. casual recreational internet that gets d disrupted when there's a communications failure like this. It's banks use it. Right. Governments use it. So fiber optic cables are pretty important. They were able to restore capacity. Well, some capacity with satellites mm -hmm. in during the downtime, almost immediately after, uh, the cable failure, Elon Musk tweeted that he's going to send Starlink terminals to Tonga and have restoration. And of course, all the Elon Musk reply guys tweeted, <laughs> thank you, Elon. Thank you for saving Tonga. You are so wise. <laughs> um, it, I don't know if Starlink actually uh, restored services. They may well have, but mm -hmm. most of the services were not over leo satellites it was over more old-fashioned geosynchronous satellites right. there are three different satellite constellations mm -hmm. that were used and you know a, a, a big failure like this with the volcano you think well is it even worth it having submarine cable hmm. but it, it's really interesting to see the performance of the internet how it changed once the cable was restored right um one of our friends in the industry doug midori is at uh, kentic and they they measure um, latency and all kinds of things in, in almost real time. And he tweeted out something really interesting. They could tell almost in real time when the cable was restored mm -hmm. because they had been measuring latency over the satellites to Tonga, 670 milliseconds, right. almost a, two thirds of a second. Yeah. It doesn't sound like a lot, but that's really unresponsive. It can make, make a lot of applications fail to, to perform the way they're yeah. supposed to. So yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and then once the cable was restored, it jumped immediately back down to 139 millisecond mm -hmm. delay. So now it's probably worth pointing out that very few places would be as tied to a single cable as an island geography like like Tonga. So, you know, but it's certainly conceivable that such a disaster could take out the majority of cables on some key routes, right? Well, it's happened before. Uh, the gigantic earthquake off of Japan about 12 mm -hmm. years ago, uh, that it was a 9.0 or 9.1 on right. the Richter scale. And it moved the earth, uh, the, that the Pacific plate or one of the, the, the plates about six feet, I believe. Wow. That's a big earthquake. Yeah. Yeah. That, that ripped up a bunch of cables at mm -hmm. once. Not every single trans-Pacific cable was destroyed, but mm -hmm. many were. Right. So it is possible. Yeah. Especially when there are cables that are routed through a fairly narrow corridor, that, right. that's a dangerous area. Mm -hmm. But speaking of resiliency and disasters, there was another disaster that started uh, about a month after the Tonga volcanoes, and that was Vladimir Putin's decision to invade Ukraine. Indeed, yeah. Uh, and that really did bring, for me at least, as a watcher of the telecom industry, a lot of the, the practical elements of telecommunications to the fore, mm -hmm. both how resilient a network can be and also how critical telecommunications can be. Right. We, um, so much of what we do with cloud services or, or telecom services, it seems so prosaic mm -hmm. every day. And it's really interesting to see how the Ukraine military and government have used the same tools that we use for intra-corporate communications for 
fighting off this invasion. Right, right. Even uh, even just bringing awareness to the world to raise money, to get uh, support, that sort of thing. Well, yeah, exactly. There was, there was a, one moment when earlier in the war when uh, Zelensky made a petition to Congress, basically, mm-hmm. which was reminiscent of what Winston Churchill did right. in 19, late 1941 or early 1942, I think. Um, he, he Churchill had to make a very dangerous crossing the Atlantic. I believe he did it in a destroyer. Right. Um, and so he could make an in-person visit to U.S. Congress. Zelensky did the same thing, but over Zoom. Right. It was literally over Zoom. Much just safer, like any more efficient. Yeah. 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 And important because, you know, just being able to see people in real time, there's something magical mm-hmm. about that, something important, very mm-hmm. human. And if you're making an, an appeal that's partly based on not just on national interests, but on emotion as right. well, that's there's no substitute for seeing another human being. Mm-hmm. So Zoom was isn't one example. Uh, more recently, I saw a photo of Ukrainian commanders on Google Meet, and they were watching in real time a drone that they had up in the air and Russian armor coming in, and they were coordinating a defense against that wow. uh, Russian attack. Yeah. They were sending in um, uh, artillery to, to counterattack the, mm-hmm. uh, the armor. That is really fascinating. Just, you know, using these uh, tools that we use every day for just, you know, <laughs> boring meetings or whatever being used, uh, you know, to, to craft world events is, is pretty amazing. Yeah, exactly. Here, here are a few other examples too. Google Maps, you know, people, if they, ha- they have a phone and they have it turned on and they don't have the privacy settings set, ah, they, mm-hmm. they're... Their phone will ping to Google servers to let it know how fast they're going down a road. Right. And that's one of the ways Google can tell you, oh, there's a traffic jam up five miles from here. Right. And it shows as red, mm-hmm. right? On your, if you're using nav- navigation. The night before the invasion, there was a big red line from a major Russian city to the Ukrainian border. Mm-hmm. And what it was, was likely Russian troops had failed to turn off their cell phones right. and they were sitting in a convoy ready to invade. So that it showed as really, yeah. that is really interesting. Yeah. It, it, it reminds me of a similar story. There was, uh, if you know what Strava is, it's, it's like the social media app for running and cycling and stuff like that, where you can post like how far you ran or, or did a, a cycling ride and um military u.s military guys were on strava and posting their runs publicly and they they realized that they were giving away the location of their base because they're like out there running around their base or whatever so um definitely all these all these tools that we use every day in life uh take on a different character in in wartime certainly so yeah you don't think of operational security when you're wearing a smart watch or bringing your phone around but it's Nowadays, 21st century, it's pretty critical. Mm-hmm. Here's a here's a last example. Do you or do your kids ever watch unboxing videos on YouTube? <laughs> yeah. uh, Is certainly. that still a thing? I think I think so. I I don't, but uh, my kids do absolutely. Yeah, they probably haven't watched this one. I certainly hope not. But it was the strangest <laughs> unboxing video I've ever seen. It was a Ukrainian soldier unboxing a gift from the United Kingdom. Uh, an anti-tank missile oh, wow. in law yeah. um, for, 
and he unboxed it carefully to show what it's like. And then he provided an instructional video of how to assemble it and how to fire the weapon wow. against armor. So YouTube being for practical, practical things. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that was a real thing. It still is. Yeah, that is really interesting. So it's, I think both, both of your stories, the, the, the natural and the human disaster kind of illustrate how deep the internet is into our lives and in, in ways that you, you don't think about necessarily until they're missing or perhaps used in a different way or whatever. So um, all of this stuff that we do, the mapping, uh, uh, the infrastructure research, the pricing research is, is about probably the most critical piece of infrastructure arguably humanity has ever had across the, the earth. So, Well, over 99% of intercontinental communications happens over fiber optic submarine cables. Now, Ukraine is connected mainly through terrestrial cables to the rest right. of, of Europe. And there's uh, a far greater degree of resiliency. There are mm -hmm. far more cable, uh, physical paths. As you were mentioning with Tonga, it's only one cable. So right. if it goes down, that whole country's down. The Ukrainian internet has proven really resilient. Mm -hmm. That's been one interesting thing to outcome of the, the conflict in terms of telecommunications infrastructure. There have been some instances when there's been a, a blip of uh, a, a blackout, essentially, mm -hmm. data blackout. Mostly that comes back. Um, it's been rougher, though, the last month or two when the mm. Russian government decided to switch tactics a little bit and deliberately go after the Ukrainian electrical infrastructure. Uh, right, because it's a lot of shared. Well, first, obviously, uh, central offices and, and whatnot need power, but also there's a lot of shared ducts and whatnot, right? So, Yeah, and, and, and you know, fiber optic communications requires power. Mm -hmm. you know, summary cables come with their own power source. Right. And terrestrial have power huts occasionally that regenerate the signal. Mm -hmm. If they do not have electricity, you do not have internet. Right. You don't have right. communication. So there's been more disruption over the last month or two than we saw in the previous six months of the war. So that's going to be something interesting to watch in 2023. It is, it is really uh, sort of useful to, to point out and understand that uh, Terrestrial networks are are still very hard to take down because certainly it would it would benefit the Russians to to have uh, the Ukraine mostly off of the internet and they having not been able to achieve that for for the past year uh, in any kind of uh, major way I think is indicative of of how difficult it must be they they certainly would want to yeah and there were in, before the war there was a lot of speculation that the Russian government had really sophisticated cyber warfare capabilities. Mm -hmm. And it didn't, a lot of the, the nightmare scenarios thought that there would be attacks, just virtual right. or cyber attacks on the telecom infrastructure in Ukraine. And we don't know, we, the public don't really know exactly what has happened, but it didn't appear to happen yeah. in yeah. February, March, April of this year. Um, it, it, the connectivity to Ukraine was, has been fairly stable. The, the moments when there has been serious degradation is because of physical trauma to the right. network. Right. We've seen photos of uh, Ukrainian uh, fiber, fiber optic engineers going out to the field, and there's this huge crater from an artillery strike, mm -hmm. and they're in there splicing the fiber. Yeah. So, so if you if you 
destroy the actual fiber or you take away the electricity that it needs, then there's a problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that, that, uh, the the diffuse uh, nature of, of terrestrial internet is such that uh, often things can easily be rerouted. Um, so you may you may have degradation in service, but it's it's really hard to have a complete blockage of service essentially. Unless there's an entire regional blackout, which right. there have been occasionally, right. and mm-hmm. so that you know if if they can manage to to keep the power up, the, the internet should be fine. <laughs> Well, your, your devices are mostly uh, going to be down after a, a certain amount of time of the power being out anyway, right? So that's a, kind of a, a dual problem there, right? So yeah. excellent. Well, this was really interesting, Tim. And um, uh, I think there's some stuff that, uh, that we can look out for over the next year. Obviously, we, we don't relish any kind of disaster and, and the human toll of this is, is terrible. But it's really interesting to see the, the role that, uh, that all of the kind of abstract things that we look at at telegeography uh, affect real lives. Yeah. And you're one of the only telegeographers who, who has regularly gotten to go on like real television and whatnot. And I'm always stuck in the, the, uh, you know, industry press kind of stuff. So, so folks can look out for you sometimes talking about, uh, some of this stuff on, on cable news and whatnot. Right. Yes, I suppose. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> too, too modest. All right. All right. Thanks, Tim. That was a lot of fun. Thanks, Craig. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Telegeography Explains the Internet comes from the experts here at Telegeography. It's edited and produced by Jane Miller, and it's hosted by me, Greg Bryan. And I also wrote that theme song you're listening to right now. To learn more about our data, jump over to telegeography.com, and we'll see you on the Internet.